0: Animal Farm was written by George Orwell and published in August of 1945.
1: This allegorical tale depicts the rebellion of conscious farm animals against their human farmer, Mr. Jones.
0: In today's episode, we will discuss the history of George Orwell, the allegory of the story, as well as the overall plot of the first five chapters.
1: This is Analytical. Hello! Hello, hello! I'm Hannah. And I'm John. And we're your favorite literary nerds
0: who are very silly. Apparently,
1: we're very silly <laughs> we did not really think about how much a book is longer than a short story
0: apparently there's a very big difference between like a chapter and like two pages who would have thought
1: uh, not me <laughs> not me so we apologize for the delay in this episode but we hope you enjoy it and we're going to start off by talking about the history of george orwell
0: he was a very interesting guy, and I think I would like to start off by the very, like, fact that he's not man named George Orwell. That is not his Christian name.
1: No, his name was Eric Arthur Blair. I'm sorry, I laughed at the
0: Christian <laughs> name thing. That was just kind of funny.
1: Because he was born in colonial India.
0: I'm sure he was Christian, though. He's British.
1: That's fair.
0: It's the 19... When was hundreds. Yeah, hundreds. 1903
1: is when George Orwell was born. So I think born. he would have
0: had to be Christian, especially in uh, colonial India.
1: In his early days, he worked with the Burmese Indian Imperial Police. He had commented, this is in the beginning of my book Animal Farm by George Orwell. Oh, who was (laughs) the the publisher, actually? There we go. Published by Harcourt Brace Book.
0: Okay. Don't know him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I don't either.
1: But in the beginning of my book, it says he commented, in order to hate imperialism, you have to be a part of it. And so I think it really leads into who Orwell is as a person.
0: I think you're right. I actually did a report on Orwell in high school, and I that was kind of the feel I got as well, was he saw these people suffer and struggle, and he wanted to be a proponent of change. I think you kind of are going to get into this right after this, is that they didn't really accept him as that?
1: No, he was a very outspoken socialist, which this book kind of talks about. But he didn't like the socialism of the USSR.
0: Mm-hmm. He, was out, he was speaking out against that it wasn't socialism. That's kind of what he says in this book. And like, we'll get into that way later, obviously. But he kind of was saying that, hey, you guys ain't doing what you need to be doing. I know what you need to be doing, and it's actual communism.
1: Not communism, socialism.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Because they are I know different.
0: But they're very, no one knows the difference.
1: That's fair. But there is a difference.
0: What's the difference, Hannah?
1: So, technically, socialism is where it's like shared resources. Communism, on paper, is where you don't have a government. It's like a utopia where
0: all the individuals is, govern themselves. All socialism is when the workers control the means of production.
1: Yes, but communism is where you don't have a governing body at all.
0: Yes, there is no higher power in, 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 in true communism, I guess I should say. There has never been a true communistic country in this world. No, because there's always some dictator who has a big head.
1: Or big politician in general, not dictator. But yes, they're usually dictators.
0: I, I don't care. I'm not going to call a president, and I'm putting quotes around that, a, a president. Because they're a dictator. No matter how, like, uh, I'm not going to get into an actual country. But if you're the president for a good three decades, then you're the dictator. I hate to bring it to you.
1: That's fair. I agree. On paper.
0: Correct. Correct. This is the definition. Agreed. Agreed.
1: Semantics.
0: I think, you're right. And I think it's very important we talk about semantics. But for all sets of purposes, no one really cares about it overall. I know a lot of people use the words interchangeably, and anything that you know is left of center is socialism slash communism.
1: So getting into the book a little bit, both versions of ours started with a forward and a preface. Mine also had an introduction. It was a three-parter. I would say, if this is your first time reading it, skip the forward and preface until the end. They really seem like reflection essays where they are talking about what happens in the book, and if you don't want to be spoiled, do not read them.
0: Yeah, I agree with what Hannah said, but I would like to say that I don't know how long spoilers last, you know? Like, this book's pretty old, so if you don't know, like.
1: I hadn't known what it was for no, the first no, time I read it. No, you're right,
0: it. you're right, but I'm just saying, like, you don't get to be upset that this book got spoiled. But it's like if uh, A Tale of Two Men.
1: A Tale of Two Cities? No. Of Mice and Men? Yeah,
0: that's the one. It's like. The next
1: one we're doing? Yeah,
0: the next one we're doing. It's like if Of Mice and Men got spoiled, like, everyone knows what happens. But know? we're not spoiling that no, now. no, 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 no. I'm just saying, like, it doesn't really exist, you know?
1: So with Animal Farm, I think it's important to note that it was first published in England in 1945, but it was not published in the U.S. until 1946. And Orwell had actually started writing it in 1943. He had a very hard time getting it published because of the positive light the USSR was in at the time.
0: I don't necessarily know if it's positive light, but I think it was a necessity that everyone be nice to the USSR for their help in this war effort. Because the USSR was a tremendous assistance, I mean, not assistance, they did most of the work in World War One and Two and took most of the brunt of the forces. Like, they had huge stuff after World War One. I, I know, something like, I'm not going to name, name a number, but a huge percentage of adults, of adult men in Russia, I mean, not Russia, the USSR just disappeared, died. They suffered the worst losses of any country that fought against the, like, of any, like, allied country.
1: I think it's also important to note that the book so clearly vilifies Stalin, which gets into the allegory a lot, but that's also why it was so hard to publish. Stalin had held the line against the Germans, and this is coming from the foreword of our book, and so they didn't want to go against him after the Second World War.
0: And, I mean, I don't blame them at all. The USSR was absolutely integral in winning the war.
1: And not only that, they also had proven that they could take down one of the strongest armies that the Nazi army was at the time. And so no one wanted to make him upset where maybe he would go after them next.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this book definitely, I think, would have made him upset.
1: I don't know if it ever did. I'm actually not sure that much into it, but it definitely seemed like it.
0: I guess I don't know that much about Stalin.
1: I know a bit about Stalin, about like what he did, but I don't know much else. We also can see a lot of what he did in this book.
0: Yes, we can. I kind of like that. It's like a history lesson.
1: It is a little bit, but it's also a really well-written book overall.
0: Another thing that contributed to Orwell's dislike of Stalin was during the Spanish Civil War, he was a participant in it, not Stalin. Well, not Stalin directly, but Stalin's cronies, I guess you could say, his political allies were the ones, I don't know if causing the Civil War, but they were who Orwell was fighting against in the Spanish Civil War. So he was you know, not a fan because of that. He had to go to Spain. He suffered an almost fatal throat wound.
1: Yeah, that'd be almost fatal.
0: <laughs> I guess it depends where they hit you. But yeah, you're right. No.
1: So Orwell seemed to have moved around a lot. He moved, he was born in India. He had moved to Spain for a while and fought in the Civil War. It's actually where he met his wife, I'm pretty sure. It was with his wife at the time. And then he wrote in England and tried to get published in England.
0: I think it's interesting to note that Orwell called the book a fairy story. So he was kind of like being cheeky about this whole thing. He's like, oh no, it's a fake book about animals. They talk. Isn't that so delightful, guys? It's a fairy tale. Yeah. It's a nice
1: story. I like that. He seems very cheeky to oh, use the yeah. British to- uh, term. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I think now is a great time to jump right into the first chapter.
1: Go ahead. I don't know if we want to go through my notes of the chapters. I know I said Old Major definitely seemed like a Joseph type. And I think there is a little bit of biblical undertones throughout this, which is also interesting as well.
0: I think there definitely are biblical undertones, but there's a lot of, what's the word for that? Illusion. Biblical illusions happen all the time in literature. I think it's because the tones of the Bible just strike so hard for so many people. I mean, there's Christians, and I I know Jewish people read the same Bible, like the First The Old Testament, Testament. So, like, the themes stick for a lot of people in a lot of religions. Even if you're not of the Jewish or Christianity religion, which, you know, a lot of people in the United States especially are, you have heard of the Bible. Who hasn't heard the Bible? It's the best-selling book in the world, they say, but I don't know if they know that. So I think it's just an interesting thing that a lot of authors like to use.
1: After a quick Google, I've also found that there are similar stories from the Bible that are also in the Quran, and I'm not sure if they're, you know, same ones or how that
0: works. I just think these uh, biblical allusions are so ingrained in our, like, just culture and in all literature almost. Well, yes, in all literature, across all literature, you can find biblical allusions everywhere just because they're so, like, universal almost. And I mean, they are, like, they truly are. You can say cross, you're just like, oh, that's Jesus. just said one of those. You just know it. And, like, what you said, like, he just, you got, like, he was Jonas. Not Jonas. Oh, my God. Joseph. Joseph.
1: <laughs> Especially with the dreams. I feel like you just see that a lot. And, like, even how, like, DreamWorks did a movie of Joseph. Out. <laughs> There's a musical, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Like, there are just so many different things where they have taken the biblical stories and put them into our pop culture as well.
0: Very correct. I guess briefly we should touch on who Old Major is. So this first chapter focuses on introducing the characters to us. So Old Major is this old pig. He's the prize of the farm, I guess, in a sense. There's the horse boxer. There's an old donkey. Moses? No, that's the raven. No,
1: the donkey is named Benjamin.
0: Benjamin, yes, of course.
1: There's another horse named Clover. Also, we, I do want to point out that Boxer is 18 hands high. I didn't do horse judging. I am allergic. little fact about Hannah. <laughs> but that's a pretty big horse. No,
0: that's a huge horse. And they kind of talk about that the rest of the book, that Boxer is the like workhorse of this farm. And like, I really don't think anything happened in this book without Boxer. Boxer is the hero of this book, to me at least.
1: 100 (laughs) percent the dogs there's bluebell jesse and pincher they're not as important there's more dogs later on but these are just the mama dogs kind of
0: the named dogs i guess you could say yes
1: the named characters there's muriel a goat and i said they're a lot more creative at naming animals than we ever were with ours
0: yes Um, if you don't know us we're from farm families so we are really bad at naming animals
1: we named one (laughs) ham one time it was a pig (laughs) We have Molly the mayor, a lot of unnamed poultry, then Moses the raven, which John had already talked about.
0: He's very important. A lot of these characters are kind of recurring characters. Moses is a little different than all these rest of the characters. The rest of the characters kind of make up the ensemble of the protagonist group, I would say, of the farm animals. Moses kind of exists as a side character. He doesn't do any work at all. He just kind of spews religion is what he's saying.
1: I kind of saw him as an allegory for Rasputin. He's a raven and like there's the Rasputin character, not character, it's an actual person. Sorry. I'm thinking of <laughs> well, movie I, the Anastasia. Mutant,
0: like, myth, you know, like, he, he definitely becomes a character in our, like, iconogy, like, that's not a word. He
1: I has, like that word, <laughs> iconogy.
0: He definitely has become a character in our, like... Pop culture. Yes, that's the word I was going to use, but I burped. Thank you, Hannah.
1: <laughs> he definitely has, just with, like, the song.
0: Yeah, the, the song especially.
1: And then just the movie Anastasia as well, which kind of retells this from a different point of view.
0: So I guess briefly, allegory is a word worth throwing around like we should know what it is, and I think we should because we're reading the book, but you guys probably don't because it's kind of a weird word. An allegory is a type of story which retells a historical story, but from a fictional kind of point of view, I guess you would say, they kind of just smack these characters onto these, like, fictional things like, oh, hey, like, it's a fairy story, quote-unquote, but it's like, oh, like, everyone reading it would have absolutely understood that, oh... All these characters are a little more than they seem. Like, this old pig guy is kind of talking about communism a little too much, you know? Like, like a certain communist we might know and love, Lenin, slash... Marx. Marx.
1: Yes, especially when you use the words comrades. Yes. That is so ingrained in communist culture, mm-hmm. to call someone comrade? I would
0: say communist, like, discourse is a better way to put it. Okay. Just a better word to use. Okay.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's really interesting to see how they, comrades, and how instantly in this story too, you already have an antagonist, which is man, same, LOL, (laughs) but I just think it is interesting to note how instantly there is someone you are against, and how clearly you see that throughout the story as well with this allegorical tale. You always have an enemy, which I think in any government or any society, we always have an enemy.
0: It's a very, very... Very, I don't use that word lightly, I'm saying that three times, guys, very effective unifying technique. You want to have a common enemy. If you unite people against a common enemy, those people have a reason to band together. They have a reason to be unified. It creates community.
1: It definitely does, and I think that's what you see a lot with, like, after the Great Depression, with World War II, is what took us out of it, because we all were unified against a common enemy. Mm -hmm. You see people come together after tragedies, and so to have a common threat, a common dislike, it really just binds you and bonds you it really
0: does so we are introduced to these characters and all their names as they're entering into this barn as they have been called here by this old pig old major the, he's very respected so that they trust him which i thought was kind of interesting they're just like hey yo this old pig guy says he had dreams so let's go listen to that that sounds interesting as heck
1: they did it in the bible with joseph it really <laughs> it makes sense
0: well it's like some random guys like oh i had a dream We're just like yeah let's crazy ass dream crazy I mean, act dream
1: i love hearing people's dreams
0: I do too, but I like to psychoanalyze them.
1: Dreams are great. (laughs) But yes, so then we get into his tale and how all men are enemies and all beasts are comrades. Whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy, four legs and wings is a friend. Do not come to resemble man. I think it's important to really point this out because it does such good foreshadowing for the rest of the story. It really
0: does. The foreshadowing is amazing throughout the story.
1: It talks about we will not be in a house, we will not be in a bed, we will not wear clothes, drink alcohol, smoke tobacco, use money, trade, we will not kill each other. We are brothers and we are equal. And I think that is a very strong thought in socialism and communism, whichever Mm -hmm. term you want to use, that it is a very strong thought that we are brothers, we are equal, we are for each other. And then it gets morphed because someone has to be in charge and they think they are better.
0: And it always is someone coming from a higher position of power, and I don't know if they, like, rise to that power with this intent in mind or if the power along the way, like, twists some. I don't know what we're supposed to get. I think in this book we're supposed to get that the main enemy is like, always been bad because of...
1: The inherent power struggle.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: I agree. That's a really good thought. hmm Then we get into this great song, Beast of England, which is a stirring tune, something between Clementine and La Cucaracha.
0: So, of course, these, uh, animals, communist animals, animalism, animals, I should say now, that's the word, not communism, animalism, or socialism, it's animalism.
1: They also have their own, like, song for it. They have their own war cry for it, which is a really important thing, too.
0: They are very serious about this. It's kind of, they're creating a culture around this.
1: They definitely are. I'm just contemplating if I should sing again.
0: I think you definitely should. Just the first verse.
1: So we're doing it to the tune of La Cucaracha. Beast of England, beast of Ireland, beast of every land and clime." Harken to my joyful tidings of the golden future time. It's really a bop, guys. It really
0: is actually a good tune. And I imagine Orwell wrote this. I don't think there's a song called Beast of England, is there? I don't
1: think so. Maybe he took a different song, though. I have not looked into that as deeply.
0: I think that'd be interesting, but I'm sure it's not as important. But there are four verses of this. Like, it's no...
1: There's more than four! There are!
0: (laughs) This guy did very well. There's seven. Seven stanzas. Seven
1: stanzas of a song. He wrote his own poem for this. Which, I mean, the last one is the first one repeated, but it's a lot. It's a lot.
0: I'm just, you know, it's not, like, that impressive, but it's just, like...
1: That's a long song.
0: It takes a lot to do. I'm proud of him. Good job, Orwell. He didn't need my, like, thumbs up, but he got it.
1: So at the end of this chapter, they're really excited. They're singing this song. They are ready to go. Old Major does say he doesn't know when the time's coming, but be ready when it does. Mm -hmm. And now we move on to chapter two.
0: We start chapter two with Old Major dying, peacefully in his sleep, three nights after he gave his speech.
1: Which I think is really interesting too, because in the first chapter, we didn't really touch on this a lot, but he talked about the horrible ways these animals are killed, how they're slaughtered for meat, how they're drowned in rivers. They don't really have good deaths. But Old Major did. And I think this kind of shows you that these pigs are already a little bit above. Mm -hmm. How he was buried. He had a peaceful death in his sleep. And I think it's important to know for the rest of the time. Well, even
0: just how all the other animals are so respectful to all the pigs. And, like, especially Old Major, but even the other pigs later on. Like, it just, it does show that the pigs are special right off the bat.
1: And it's very important to note as well that Orwell calls the pigs the cleverest animals so many times throughout this text. I should have counted... Yeah. It would be over 10 at least. It would
0: be. He does use the word a lot.
1: Clever for the pigs every time, which I think is an interesting choice of words. Oh, yeah. Yes, it means smart, but whenever you think it, I always think of like, oh, clever girl from Jurassic Park.
0: (laughs) Like conniving. Yeah. It's it's not like, if it was smart, it would have been intelligent. Intelligent pigs, not clever pig. That's a very, very, I I use the word very too much. That's my new lie, Hannah. It's a very, (laughs) it's a deliberate word choice, obviously, but I think the way he meant it was deliberate.
1: And this is when they go to animalism.
0: Yeah, so this is when the teachings of animalism start to become more concrete. The pigs kind of devise this whole commandment system. They teach the other animals the alphabet so they can read and write. They kind of are doing this whole, like, teaching thing. Like, school, but on the farm. So that's cool, I guess. The animals are learning. They're smart.
1: I think it's also important to note that at the beginning of the chapter, when they talk about animalism and what's going to happen after the rebellion, we have one character, Molly, who asks, Will I still be allowed to wear ribbons? Will we have sugar after the rebellion? And they are very realistic about this, where they're not going to have sugar because they can't make sugar. They're only going to have what they farm and use. They're not going to be trading. They're not going to be buying things. They're only using what they have, which I really like how realistic it is.
0: It really is very realistic.
1: We also have a lot more of these religious illusions as well, with Moses talking about Sugar Candy Mountain and how that's where animals go after they die, which you really have this almost spokesperson for mr jones but also a little bit of a death doesn't matter type thing where it's be- death is better
0: yeah he definitely i don't know I, I always saw him as like the church preaching religion like oh hey workers it doesn't matter what happens in this world because the next world's where you really make it so he, they, they're just kind of saying like oh it doesn't matter if you like have a crappy life in this life the next one is the one you got to worry about so that's kind of what Moses is saying is like oh it doesn't matter animals this revolution's for nothing like you're gonna go sure candy mountain anyways so like it doesn't matter
1: and this is where we also see a lot more of that allegory come through we see mr jones which is an allegory for the czar nicholas already start to go down where he is drinking he's uh, more lazier his servants are turning on him where you see the animals aren't being fed there's just there's a lot of discontent
0: mm-hmm. and it just kind of is brewing it brews over a certain like weeks
1: and then the inciting event is where those animals have not been fed all day they go and Storm the feed barn to be fed, Mr. Jones gets up, and he doesn't have anyone helping him, and the animals run him out.
0: Revolution finished. That easy. The pigs, the two pigs emerge as leaders, Snowball and Napoleon, representing, from the allegorical standpoint, Snowball is Trotsky and Napoleon is Stalin. They kind of emerge as leaders of this new animal farm, as it's now renamed, and we kind of get the title alert, woot woot! And they write these seven commandments on the barn, so that all of the animals know what they are, and they all are just like, hey, this is what we this is what we stand for. It's kind of like a source of pride I get in these animals.
1: I do want to mention that when they take over the farmhouse, they bury the hams. And that they all agree that no animal must ever live there. And that they're going to still harvest the hay. They're like business as usual. But before they do that, they talk about these seven commandments.
0: And I think it's very important that we remember these commandments. So I'm just going to read them real fast. Whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. Whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. No animal shall wear clothes. No animal shall sleep in a bed. No animal shall drink alcohol. No animal shall kill any other animal. All animals are equal.
1: And these are really important to know as we go through the rest of the yeah, chapters. Yeah, this definitely
0: goes into the foreshadowing thing we talked about earlier. Like, all of this book connects. I mean, it's only ten chapters, so it's really easy to make it connect, but it really connects well.
1: And I think that it just speaks really well to Orwell's writing as well.
0: Yes, for sure. He's a fantastic writer. Also, with the Seven Commandments thing, we get out another allusion to the Bible.
1: Yes. The cows start mooing. They start kind of like bawling how they haven't been milked all day because the humans are gone. They say the pigs use their trotters, which is really interesting, too, how, how realistic he's <laughs> being with these animals. And that they have five buckets of frothing, creamy milk. And they're like, what's going to happen? And Napoleon instantly is never mind the milk. We got to go start the hay.
0: Yeah, so right off the bat, Napoleon's being shady as crap.
1: And it's gone when they come back in the evening. I think that it's just such a good foreshadowing to there's something sketchy going
0: on. Mm-hmm. Right off the bat, it's just like, oh, that pig is not being that good right now.
1: And so we move on to chapter three. They have a successful harvest, and we find out that these pigs aren't actually working. They are just supervising everything. And I did make a comment in my notes that, as the oldest, I always said I'd supervise, which you'd supervise cleaning, which is just like, oh, I'm a natural for leadership choice, so, you know, we don't have to do something. If you're supervising, you're not actually doing the work at all.
0: Correct, and this also continues that theme we're seeing of the pigs being held in higher regard than the rest of the animals.
1: Which will continue throughout. Oh
0: yes, it's very blatant, but it just, it kind of starts small, like, oh, like, they're just more clever, and then, oh, like, they just supervise, but they're still out there with them, and then it's like, ah, like, we'll see.
1: And it does talk about, again, everyone helps, but not the pigs, that they are better at harvesting this hay, because they're more familiar with the fields. I think that's such a good thing to notice, too.
0: It really is. It really draws upon like what you were saying earlier, that realism. Like Orwell really made us try to believe that these animals were doing it. The only unrealistic thing in this whole book is that they talk. That's it. The only thing I can't get behind this book is they talk. You know, besides that, it all makes sense to me. It's all like, yeah, these animals are doing it. It does make sense that animals would, like, be the best at hanging a field, you know?
1: It does, and I do like, we see a lot of Boxer's kind of mantra of, I will work harder. They talk about there's no stealing, grumbling, or jealousy, which, again, is foreshadowing.
0: And I think this now is a good time to remark that boxer's allegorical like counterpart is the working class. He is the workers who are at the heart and the blood of like any socialism mu- movement. It's all at the heart of the workers. That's why you see a lot of socialist parties have names like the Workers Party of whatever. Or if, you, if it's Spanish, I see a lot of them in Spanish because I study Spanish. It's Trabajador. See that all the time. So if you see a T in a political party, they're probably like communists or something.
1: Interesting. I really mm-hmm. like that. I also think it's important to note Molly's. Allegorical counterpart. Kind of I see it kind of like the rich class, the billionaires, where if everyone doesn't want change, should we still change? Because Molly did not want this. Yes,
0: definitely. Molly's the one that asked if they were still gonna get sugar. She still wants the finer things she's used to from her old life, but all the other animals are like, no, like that is a sign of my slavery. That's a sign of our bondage. Like, we don't want these ribbons in our hair, but Molly does. Molly likes feeling pretty. There's nothing wrong with that, but it it just kind of shows that Molly is at a disconnect with the other animals on Animal Farm.
1: And then I want to go into a little bit more with Benjamin's character. He stays the same. He doesn't have an opinion. He says donkeys live for a long time.
0: And he's also the oldest animal on the farm.
1: Which I think is interesting to know. It's like, wow, is he saying he's seen things like this happen before? I don't think it's very cryptic. I think it's very clear that he's saying things aren't going to stay the same. You might think this is a rebellion, but we'll see what happens at the end.
0: He, yeah, he's very untrusting of what's going on around him. Very skeptical, I think. Very skeptical.
1: And then we see again, there's a lot that goes on in this chapter.
0: It is, yeah.
1: We see that there's like a ceremony every Sunday, which kind of seems a little bit like imposed religion.
0: It's more of a ceremony thing, and you kind of see that a lot with socialistic countries. He's kind of playing on the whole like thing you see with a lot of ceremony. You know, they have a lot of medals. They like give themselves all these titles. It's what they do.
1: And then we see that Napoleon and Snowball are always disagreeing, but they're the only ones talking. I saw this as kind of a metaphor for a two-party system.
0: I think you're right that it could be a metaphor for a two-party system. I don't really know if that was as popular in the 1900s when this was being written. I'm sure it was, I guess, in America, maybe. But Britain never really had a two-party system, right? I'm not wrong in saying that?
1: I don't think so. I think they have two major parties now, but it's not like they've only ever had two mm-hmm. major parties like the U.S. definitely has. Yeah.
0: And I think it's more supposed to represent the inner struggle that was happening in the USSR at this time. Like, at the start of the Russian Revolution, there was these two upstarts, St- um, Stalin and uh, Trotsky. Trotsky. They were working together, but they were at odds with each other. That's kind of what we're seeing through this book is they were like they both had different ideas for how it was supposed to be going and i think what we're supposed to be understanding that orwell thought especially that trotsky was going to be doing a better job than stalin ends up doing
1: i agree i think you can do this a lot with books i think you can see and connect it to your own lives oh of and course so i saw it as a metaphor for it and i think
0: you're, you're right it does work like that and it's wonderful that you're seeing that and i think that's a great connection to make
1: And so then we also see that the pigs have their own headquarters. They're studying more while others work, which I think is a very clear allusion to differences in class. Mm -hmm. How you'll see the upper class citizens are studying and bettering themselves while working class citizens are not able to do that as Mm -hmm. well.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's kind of interesting that the pigs started this whole revolution. I guess the ma- old major did. And then the pigs just kind of, like, took it over. And all the other animals are going with it. But the pigs are, like, taking off with it. Like, they're definitely trying to get themselves, like, at the head of this thing.
1: And then assigning all these committees. I did not like that they had the wider wool movement. I was like, oof. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know how no, I think No, I think that
0: definitely is supposed to play into the race thing of it.
1: Was the USSR pretty racist? I don't
0: know if it was, but in the... Earlier years, more people were racist? It's
1: fair. And then we see that the dogs only care about the Seven Commandments, the Benjamin Reeds, as well as the pigs, but he does not use it, which I think is another thing of where you'll see upper-class Citizens using their political power while there's lower-class citizens who are just as intelligent.
0: Well, I think that's also supposed to play on Benjamin's role in this book. He's the skeptic. He like he doesn't care to read or write because it doesn't change anything for him. He's still going to have the same life as he always has. It's going to be miserable, it's going to suck, and he's going to die at the end of it.
1: And then we see that the stupider animals can't learn the Seven Commandments, which is a very good foreshadowing. Very
0: week. good, remember that guys, remember these things we're telling you. And we also see with that the super animals also can't learn as much the alphabet. So they can't even like read or write or replicate anything. And the example we get, I think is funny because Boxer can learn five letters at a time. So he gets A through D, but then by the time he gets E through H, he forgets A through D.
1: It is very interesting. I like the... I just thought it was funny. Poor boxer. And then we also see that they say hand is what distinguishes man. And so I was kind of wondering what the USSR said separated them from the czar.
0: Hmm. That is interesting.
1: Because I think that is supposed to be another allusion to that. Yeah. We are separated because of this one thing. So maybe even like how the US is like, oh, we're separated from communists because we let you vote. Yeah. But even if the US goes into other countries and is like, here is democracy... They don't let them vote on what kind of democracy they want. Yeah,
0: for sure. That's a good point. I do wonder what it is now. I I hadn't really considered that, but you're absolutely right.
1: I think there's always like, you have to define the other.
0: For sure, exactly.
1: And then we see that Napoleon wants to educate the young, but not the old. He doesn't care about the older people. And then you see him take these puppies, which is another foreshadowing. Very
0: foreshadowing. Remember this, guys. He takes these puppies from Jesse and Bluebell, who just had a uh, litter after Hay Harvest.
1: Nine sturdy puppies.
0: Nine sturdy puppies. <laughs>
1: and they're taken away, and they don't know where they are, and only the pigs can reach them.
0: I like that uh, everyone else just kind of forgot they existed.
1: Yeah, I mean, you do. I mean, reading it, you don't remember about them really, until yeah. later. Uh huh.
0: He really does a good job with doing the dogs.
1: Which do we know who Squealer is an allegorical? No, corner?
0: I don't. At least I'm sure someone has ideas. I think he's just supposed to be. Oh, oh, yeah, I do. He's an allegory for the uh, media.
1: Oh, that's a good one. I'm so
0: dumb. He's the media. He's the state-controlled media at the time.
1: Because he is. He is just preaching that, oh, the pigs aren't selfish. They're doing it because they need this nourishment. They have to eat the milk and the apples for themselves. But they don't like them. Why would you think they want them? And
0: all of his speeches start with comrades. I think he actually has the most instances of the word comrades. And I think that's definitely supposed to play into that media thing. Because they're trying to, like, use the same language. They're trying to, like, play that they are the people.
1: Yes. And it's also important to note that this is for your sake. This is really good propaganda. That Jones would come back. Who wants that? That they really use this propaganda for their good.
0: Uh-huh. I call this boogeymanning. The animal farm's creating this boogeyman of Jones, and and they're just like, oh, you don't want Jones to come back. You better, like, eat your vegetables or the boogeyman will get you, you know? Like, Jones is going to come back if you don't shut the h- F up and do what you're supposed to, you know?
1: So, yes, he's boogeymanning here, and now we go into chapter four where we see a lot more of this boogeymanning.
0: Yes. In chapter four, we are introduced to these neighboring farms where supposedly the pigs in charge of Animal Farm are sending pigeons to neighboring farms to educate their animals so we can spread animalism is the idea there. We slightly go back to Mr. Jones for a while. We get some humans. With this human story, we get the introduction of two neighboring farms, Foxwood and Pilkington. I guess these are the farmers, but it's their farms. Pilkington Farm, Foxwood Farm. No, 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 I'm wrong. Um, And we're introduced to these two farms. Pinchfield and Frederick.
1: Yes, we have... No. Exactly. We'll, we'll get into this. So the farm is Foxwood, who's owned by Mr. Plinkink, Pillington. And then we have Pinchfield Farm, by, who's owned by Mr. Frederick. But it is so easy to mix them up, which is what we get into later. I so have look never, at that foreshadowing. I,
0: I've never said it out loud, so yeah, that just threw me for the biggest loop ever.
1: And we see it again later. It's just so yes. crazy how this boogeymaning technique works. Yes. So now
0: would you like to get into 1984? Yes, I would love to get into 1984 now. So this, George Orwell does the same exact thing in 1984 with Eurasia and whatever the other countries I don't remember off the top of my head. But the other two countries are constantly at war with 1984, the country of 1984. It's always like, oh, we're always at war with this one country. And then it's like, no, we've always been at war with this other country. And later on in this book, they do these same exact things. So I think it's just interesting that George Orwell kind of, like, used a lot of the same ideas in this book as he does in 1984.
1: And I think they're both very anthologized and taught and studied about, and so it's just really interesting to see his techniques used in it. And
0: I really think that you can really see this book as a precursor to 1984, because this one's shorter, and 1984 kind of seems like a more—I'm going to say a more adult novel, because this one's about animals, but also because that one deals with a lot more adult subjects. Like, there's sex in that one. There's no sex in this book.
1: That's fair, but they do—I'm going to a little argue, though— because this one talks about how the humans are against them and they say, oh, it'll fall apart because they, they say they're cannibals. They torture each other. They share females with each other. And so you kind of see these darker themes playing of the humans being against them.
0: Yeah. And that's also like bookie manning from the animals. I mean, from the humans to the animals, they're kind of like spreading these lies about Animal Farm, which I think is kind of interesting that the narrator knows this. Would the animals at Animal Farm know it?
1: Yes, I don't know. It's very interesting because
0: they're not in contact with them yet. You know, like
1: I don't know. Yeah, I just think but it's I think interesting. It's also important to note that they see others start rebelling, and you see Beast of England spread. Which I think is so interesting how well Orwell predicted what was going to happen. Because he died in, like, 1950. So he probably didn't see, like, the Korean War and Vietnam War mm-hmm. where the U.S. was trying to stop the spread of communism. Yeah, exactly. And so it's just insane with how well he kind of guessed, like, oh, communism's going to spread.
0: Well, to slightly go back to 1984 again, he also predicts that in 1984 TV's very well and cameras. Like, I just think it's kind of cool. Like, George Orwell was a pretty smart guy, you know? He knew what he was doing. Definitely. I guess he didn't predict TV. TV's, TVs really a thing, but he, like, predicted the advancement of his technologies. And, like, the way they're described in 4, really, like, that, that's kind of how they exist today. It's just kind of is really strange that he was that right. You it know? is.
1: And now we go into a very important part of a battle. We see Jones and men's from other farms, as they say, Foxwood and Pinchfield. They come back with sticks and one gun, which is interesting. But they come back, and they have this fight. And Snowball, who's been studying defense and studying Caesar, launches an attack. And it's a very... Skilled attacked. He has 35 pigeons and geese peck at the calves. Then he has Muriel, Ben, and the sheep and Snowball prod and butt them. And then he retreats, but it's fake. And then he has three horses, three cows, and the rest of the pigs cut them off and charge. We have one sheep who dies. It looks like Boxer killed a guy, which is <laughs> wild.
0: And he was kind of sad, so I'm, I'm happy that Boxer has a heart, you know?
1: And then it turns out the kid's okay, but I did want to quote a little bit of a Boxer killed a guy. Like, maybe you need to lay low. <laughs> That's a little allusion to uh, Anchorman there. <laughs> but then we see that he's like, oh, Snowball says an only good human is a dead one, which is, sheesh!
0: So metal, yeah.
1: <laughs> and Boxer didn't want to kill him. He didn't want to kill anyone, not even a human. That's where he says he's still bad. And then we see Molly had hid, and after the battle begun, which I think is, again, another allusion to how upper-class citizens don't always fight the wars. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's really interesting that we see that Snowball was right there giving orders, and that he's the only reason this plan like actually worked. But like,
1: we'll get into it. Yes, we'll get into it. But I just think
0: it's important to note that.
1: Yes, period. In a
0: sense. (laughs)
1: So we see how you said earlier how they award themselves different medals. So you see the animal hero first class. And I think how you said earlier they assign themselves titles in these socialist classes or socialist societies that they already are doing this.
0: And I I think this just really plays into the ceremony of, like, these things. It kind of makes them—I don't know if it makes them feel more legitimate, but I think it kind of does. It kind of gives more legitimacy to their, like, whole plight if they're like, no, 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 we're real. We have ceremonies every Sunday, guys. We fire that cannon every, like, holiday, you know? Like, we do stuff like everyone else does. We're civilized. We have— Leaders, you know.
1: And they keep the gun from the supply of cartridges in the farmhouse, and they shoot it twice a year. On October the 12th, the anniversary of the Battle of Cowshed, and once on Midsummer Day, the anniversary of the Rebellion. So we already see these new holidays coming yes, about.
0: Yes, exactly. And I, I really think it is born in that innate, like, trying to give legitimacy to themselves.
1: Yes, and then we go into chapter five,
0: right in the chapter five. Love it.
1: And then we have Molly has stopped working, and she's keeps taking things, but she's not working. And so we again see these differences between the class come about. And then you see that Pillington from Foxwood has been with Molly, and she denies it. And it's just a very interesting thing about how she hides this sugar, and she doesn't. She wants to be taken care of.
0: Mm-hmm. She still is holding on to her old life.
1: Yes. And so then she leaves. We see Molly leave, and I think. I don't know a lot about the upper-class citizens of the USSR at the time this was written, but I am guessing they probably left to where they could enjoy their upper-class lives.
0: I definitely think you're right. If I don't about rich people, it's that they cut and run at the first sign they get, you know? <laughs> well, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Ted Cruz, you know? I'm <laughs> ah! Just saying, like, it happens.
1: Oh, cut up my screen. <laughs> <laughs> we see again, the pigs are more clever. They decide the farm policy, but it's voted on. You always see disputes. And between- I would call these
0: disputes debates, even.
1: Yes, where you always see them debating and disputing and how...
0: Snowball Napoleon, that is, sorry.
1: Snowball will be winning, and then Napoleon has the sheep start yelling, four legs good, two legs bad, and that it will turn the tide.
0: And I think that kind of, like, shows us that the animals are still really dumb. These sheep are allowed to just bleat everything, and all the other animals are like, oh, yeah, no, Napoleon's a good point, too. He was yelling a lot, you know?
1: <laughs> and I think that's a good, it's a really mean thing to say, but it's also a good thing to say about how less educated people go with the person who's yelling the loudest. No, I think
0: you're definitely right. It, it is definitely supposed to say that, like, hey, like, people are dumb, and they're definitely going to like the guy that's dumb, too.
1: Exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. Oof. <laughs> oof. <laughs> oof. We're just going to leave Oof. <laughs>
1: And so then we see that Snowball wants to build a windmill. He says it'll be able to bring electricity so they can do some more things. And then you see Napoleon is against the windmill. He goes and examines the plans and then pees on them. (laughs) I
0: thought that was hilarious. (laughs) I also think it's important to note that Napoleon isn't really against the windmill. He just doesn't like the idea because it's his idea. I mean, it's not. It's, It's Snowball's idea
1: and so Benjamin disagrees either way life is bad and I think it's a thing too where you see people I'm going back to the two party system where you see people are like well both parties suck which is fair we're
0: screwed either way but yeah. that's where we're at exactly yeah and so
1: you can't not have an opinion no I
0: think Orwell's definitely speaking out against like skepticism and sitting on the sidelines here he's like you have to pick a side I think because Benjamin isn't displayed in negative light per se but he's definitely not given a good treatment he's not the hero in the story ever he's just kind of a side character and he definitely does take some more Cowardly paths. So I think Orwell's definitely speaking out against this kind of lifestyle. I accept centrist hate on this like platform. <laughs>
1: I also think it's important to note that Napoleon wants to build an army, and we see Snowball who wants to go and have more rebellion. And so I do wonder how much Stalin wanted to build his own army and how much Trotsky wanted to go free other nations. I think he
0: definitely did. I think you're absolutely right. That's what we're supposed to be getting, is that Stalin was kind of like focusing like on his own like self-interest. He really wanted to better himself and his country. And Trotsky was like, no, 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 I believe in this idea we have that old major gave us.
1: And then we get to the vote, and this is a very important part of the book. We see Snowball about to win the vote for this windmill to be built and to spread more rebellion, and then Napoleon calls his dogs, which do you want to talk about this allegory?
0: Yes, so Napoleon whistles, and the nine puppies from earlier are these huge guard dogs, and they come in and run Snowball off, and he is ran out of town. The dogs are the allegorical representation of the secret police, Stalin's secret police force. They were his guards. They were killing his political enemies. They were chasing his political enemies out of town, and the Noble running away is especially interesting because Trotsky had to run away to Siberia. He was banished to Siberia. He finished his life in Siberia because he was going to die. If he came back to the rest of the USSR.
1: I think it's also interesting to note this another allusion of dogs wag their tails to Napoleon as they did to Mr. Jones. So we already see this kind of dichotomy between Mr. Jones and Napoleon. Yeah. Wow, that was a good word. That was
0: a good word. That's an ACT word right there.
1: Ooh, SAT. We SAT. That's an
0: SAT word. <laughs>
1: And so then we see that Napoleon assumes total control. He has no more Sunday meetings. He's totally changed everything. He has a special committee of pigs. The rules will be passed down. They'll meet for a flag salute, a song, a different song. And he's given orders, no debates. And even Boxer is upset by this, but they're all silenced by these secret police dogs. I
0: mean, these dogs came in and just ran off the previous guy who was fighting this bad leader. That way, I'm now going to call him the evil guy because he is being the evil guy in this book. Yes. And now that we all know it.
1: <laughs> and then we also see the sheep silence them. So these are like... Blatant supporters said, oh my gosh, using them as sheep is such a good so good. It's so good. It
0: really is. Just it was perfect. This book is so amazing. It's like, perfect. Okay,
1: sheep. Like it's so good.
0: Sheeple, yeah.
1: Oh, uh, and then I mean we're just gonna upset some people, but like using pigs too. Uh-huh. Like, oh my gosh, it's so good. Like he's literally calling Stalin a pig. Uh-huh.
0: It's amazing. <laughs> And I think it's also important we get a lot more ceremony now. Comrade Napoleon says it, it must be right, is what Boxer says. He, like, he adds Napoleon that to his is mantra. Napoleon right. is always right, and Boxer just accepts it. And I think that kind of shows us that the working class was willing to accept whoever was in charge.
1: Yes, and especially with Squealer, the media, which uh-huh. uh, such a good name, Squealer, makes Napoleon look good. Leadership is hard. He lies about Snowball in the battle. He says Snowball left us, which is just not true. And do you want Jones back? Yeah. Like, do you want the czar back? Right. It's so yeah. Right good. back into
0: boogeymaning. You know, like, oh, you don't want. And ah, uh, yes, they play it up so well. And then we go and we get more ceremony right after this. Napoleon digs the skull of old Major out of the ground and places it next to the flagstaff.
1: Yes. And so now you're worshiping Lenin or Marx, like whatever you want to call it. You're literally worshiping animalism or yes. the idea of it. Uh-huh. And so it just completely changes. And so.
0: And really, they are worshiping this skull on the meeting day. So it really does play into that like religion idea.
1: Hey guys, it's Hannah and John.
0: Editing time.
1: So we were editing and we realized we had over an hour and a half of raw footage.
0: Which is a lot for an episode, especially for us.
1: So we're going to cut this off now and we hope you will join us next time as we finish out these last five chapters.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Analytical is created, hosted, and produced by Hannah and John Newland.
1: It is edited
0: by John Newland. The artwork was created by Hannah Newland using Logo Maker and is owned by Hannah and John
1: the theme music you're jamming to now is created by John Bartman, and you can check out more of his work at his website, johnbartman.com.
0: Web design is by hand Newell, and you can find us at analyticalpod.wixsite.com analytical, and you can find that link in the description.
1: All our social pages are at analyticalpod, and you can email us at analyticalpod at gmail.com to reach out and discuss your thoughts on this episode, to chat about literature, or life.
0: Please rate and review us, and subscribe to our podcast, and tell your friends. It will help other people find and enjoy as well.